You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. I clicked the button. You did. Kirk, did you get a lot of messages after our last Training Tuesday? I did get a lot of messages, more than I think I've received after any Training Tuesday. How about you? Certainly the most in a long time, which is interesting because we kind of, like, I don't know, wandered around for 20 or 30 minutes on that. And then it built towards the end and we finished with some, you know, good, honest, raw talk and Mm -hmm. emotion behind what we were saying. And that's obviously the part that got to people. But a lot of people connected with A, how to analyze a race and B, how to be brutally honest with yourself. Yeah, I agree. Which is the part we hadn't talked about going into the episode that just kind of came out. Yeah, we we always bring that out of each other, I feel like. That's and true. you know what you know what's interesting about our training Tuesday chats? And I think you'll have to agree with me on this, is when we get done recording, sometimes we're like, uh, I don't know how well that went. We'll like yeah. say that off mic. And that was one of those where I was like, I don't know if we gave the listener anything in that hour and a half. And it's somehow it, those are the ones that people respond to. So it's very interesting. Yeah, they're they're the ones where we know we followed a good outline a good script. And we're like, that was well executed. But half the times it's the ones where we switch our, our train of thought in the middle that people enjoy. So anyways, got a lot of great answers off that, but you had a call to action at the end of that episode yep. to VJ Jones. You said it's real easy for people to talk about their takeaways when they failed. Like I talked about my failure races. You talked about Asheville where in your own words, you were, it was fine, but you were not thrilled. You were apathetic towards it. And you said, I'd love to hear from the winner, VJ Jones, who was the only one who looked great the whole way and won by a lot uh, proportionately. And I'd love to hear what his takeaway is, because we know he's a cerebral athlete. He doesn't do anything by chance. VJ, I thought you ignored me because you didn't slide into my personal DMs. You slid, slid into the running public and I must have missed it. So I'm very happy to hear that you gave us your answers. Thank you. So VJ, Kirk didn't even know until I brought it up this morning that you messaged him or messaged us. So I'm going to read this. And this is fresh to Kirk's ears. He has not seen or heard your message, but thank you for responding. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this because again, it was, it's a reminder that a VJ doesn't do anything by chance and B a good to the outside, a perfect race is uh, going to be broken down incredibly well by someone who's a perfectionist. There's levels to everything. Well, it's relative. Yeah, and it's all relative. He had the best race out of, right, out of everybody there and compared to how your race went, but there's still things to improve upon. Let's hear it. All right, so he started out with a pros and cons list, which I like, broad strokes, and then he had his takeaways and then a summary. I love it. I mean, the, t- the teacher in me loves loves the setup. He gets an A for organization. So just for perspective, this was a first place performance at a U.S. National Series race in the biggest race brand in the obstacle racing world. And he had a pretty comfortable margin of victory against the best people in the sport. 
I would call it a dominant performance, a dominant performance. If you win by 45 seconds in this sport in a 45 to 50 minute race, that is a dominant performance. Yes. All right. Pros, smart racing, equal pacing throughout the entire event, finish the event with more in the tank, overhead obstacles were effortless, meaning things where he had to move through an obstacle by swinging through it, hanging on to something. Cons. Poor shoe choice. That one jumped out at me because he wears the same shoe for almost all his races. Mm -hmm. And so I assumed he's one of those set it and forget it type athletes, but he, he would have chosen something different. Well, I know he's, he's sung the praises of Salming. So I know I can't imagine it's the brand. Maybe he had another club in his bag. He should have used. Yeah. Yeah. They have two major Mm -hmm. options, the element and the OTC comp, I believe it's called. And yep. I don't remember which one he chose. I thought he chose the element two, and he maybe wanted the OTC count. Yeah. So poor shoe choice, weak finish slash didn't close hard. Three to 5% hill speed needs work. Downhill turnover was a little slow, not the fastest carrier. Okay. Takeaways. Hill running was strong, though they were short climbs. I wasn't phased. Low-grade hill efforts need more focus, particularly skill work. Refocus gym training for more resistance to punishment. And then practice, in quotes, Hobie turnover on technical terrain. Mm. In summary, the engine is strong and the foundation has created a better foundation than I think I've ever had. My effort was sustainable for another... Ready for this? Mm-hmm. For another 5K. <laughs> but this was not a world championship performance. I should have closed the race hard. I was careful to be clean on the last obstacles, but still should have closed out whether the race was close or not. I should have carried with more tenacity. Still was in the top five splits, but I should own them. A positive takeaway was the fastest final climb on the day. This bodes well for OCR World Championship and being a force in both distances, but I can feel the strength needed for the long, grueling descent in Stratton isn't there. The legs need just a little more strength to truly be championship level. I need to be a monster on all fronts to be a world champion. With with two months of dedicated training for worlds ahead, to say I'm not confident would be a lie. And then he said, I usually don't write things down like this. I just go over it in my mind and make adjustments. But since you asked... Mm. Thanks for putting the time into that, BJ. That was comprehensive. I, it was. You know, you know, he's. I will say, listening to that, it's he knows what he needs to work on. I think he got out of that race. He wins, and he still gets out of that race. The moving forward takeaways in which he needs to apply before OCR Worlds. I will say, with some of those things, VJ, like the guy who's in the lead. What what have I done in any race I've won? I dial back on the bucket and the sandbag because I know like if I need that extra match, I'll still have it for later instead of using it unnecessarily early, which I know is going through his head, for example. But if you're Mm going to dissect, I think it's, those are worthwhile points. I had two big things jump out at me from this entire piece, not individual pieces, but two big takeaways. The first is that, like you said, everything is relative. This is how great champions become better because he took in our eyes a perfect race and he found real actionable details to work on Mm -hmm. real actionable. A lot of people would say, wow, 
being one of the leanest guys there, I was still top five on the the bucket. And he said, that bucket was not a world championship performance. I need to dominate on all fronts. Yeah. Like you have to create that chip on your shoulder if it's not there. And he's he has that mindset of the greats to really good is not acceptable. Perfection is what he's always striving for. Because he had more cons than pros. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You listed off. Or e- 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 equal cons to pros, but his takeaways were primarily negative. He, he, he acknowledged the things he did well, but he harped on the things he did not well. Enough, I think, of, not well I think about this. I mean, climbing, let's say in quotes, was an issue for him in his early days. I think mm-hmm. that's been squashed. But I know the last climb of that course in Asheville, and it was like a 130-foot or 50-foot gain steep climb. And, you know, that guy checked that box off. If he had the fastest last climb in the in the race, he's worked. I bet you if you read his log two years ago, it would have been something about the steep uphills. And now we're like, oh, I haven't been working that douche grade three to five percent much. And now I see like that's the next weapon I need in my my arsenal. So, like, I don't know. I bet you all of what he's done through this process has led him to now these new weaknesses. Now we're sort of splitting hairs. And that's a, yep. that's a good place to be. And that's the second thing that jumped out at me. He's to the luxury of splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. It speaks to the, the process. When you approach something sequentially and appropriately, you don't leave the race saying, man, I need my 5K to be three minutes faster. Or I've got to lower my threshold pace by 30 seconds per mile. Or I have to be able to climb you know, a full minute per mile faster. You leave saying, okay. I need to work on resistance to punishment on these descents because those short, steep descents obviously beat him up. He had the feeling of being beat up to the point where he couldn't access as much of his fitness as he would have wanted to had the race been 5K longer. He's looking ahead saying, if short, nasty descents did that to me, what's a five, 10 minute descent at Worlds going to do to my legs? I can't afford to find out that I'm not prepared to finish off a race. So you get to start splitting hairs and that's how you craft a perfect race. It starts by perfecting all the boring stuff early. Now he gets to work on fun things. Well, my biggest takeaway is his competitor in which I've never beat him uh, would be that if you could sustain that effort for another 5K, and you finished smiling, and you beat the field by 45 seconds, that's a very scary prospect in a field where everybody crossed the finish line and collapsed. Yeah. I would say that that the future bodes bright. Um, with that one thing, which maybe didn't mean much to him, like he's just, oh, I was so in control, I think if I had to, I could sustain it. But if you're listening to this as your competitor and you're hearing that, that's a, that's a pretty intimidating thing. I don't need to hear anything else about where you're at. You'll fix the sp- splitting of hairs. That's a good place to be. You typically only hear that answer or that statement from someone who's not super sharp, but it's got a monster engine where they'll say, you know what? I probably could have gone double the distance, but I could not have gone any faster. Like I was redlined. I would, I could just, there was no more speed, but I probably could have held it longer. Whereas his was, I was successful. I won. I probably should have pushed a little harder at the end to practice championship tactics, but I could have done it for another three miles. Yeah. Well, that's done, awesome. Sir. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time, VJ. Again, appreciate that. And and I think it's important for people to go back through. Maybe maybe listen to that 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 read aloud there one more time to get the idea of how do I approach successes 
because he celebrated it. He said he had con, I mean, pros. He talked about it, his takeaways, things he did really well. I wasn't even phased by the steep hills. My engine's strong. I've created a better foundation than I've ever had. But he doesn't throw out the foundation and he doesn't solely harp on the foundation. He acknowledges it so he doesn't forget it in the future, but then he harps on the mistakes. And that's exactly what you do. That's how you you get great and how you remain great. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he said he did not normally write that stuff down, but he goes through a mental checklist. But mm-hmm. I bet you when you write that down, it's uh, it's always a little more impactful. So glad he did that. And I guess my final thing is a, a thank you to VJ because a lot of people at the top are incredibly, incredibly defensive and protective of their process. Yeah. VJ has been an open book with us. He's never not answered a question. We've had him on twice or once. Twice. Twice. And now this, and he's never shied away from opening up the book and showing people his process. That's That speaks to confidence in what you're doing and also a desire to help other people get better. Because a lot of people would say, I don't want them to get any better because that's a threat to my throne. Well, I think a lot of people will give us sort of like the uh, the ingredients. They'll like throw like, here's a few of the ingredients I use, but they don't necessarily give you the recipe. And I think BJ's done a nice job in our last episode of sort of explaining, you know, not only the ingredients and the recipe, and then just a yeah. dive in there would be the be the icing on the cake. We're going to stay with cooking references. So I, I that last thing to say is that that idea of if you're going to beat me because of my process, then you're better than me anyways. Right. Like if I actually have something unique and special and you use it, then you're the better athlete. It's I'm not winning because of my process. I'm winning because of my body and my mind combined with the process, knowing that if you win, you're better. But I like my odds knowing what I bring to the table. I like that. I like that confidence and that openness that he brings. Do you still fire athletes of yours if they beat you in a race? Is that still one of your, is that your one golden rule? I remember, well, well, I asked because the, you were still coaching me at the time and we went and did the Lambeau field sprint Spartan sprint or stadium. Sorry. And uh, I think I was like 13 or 17 seconds behind you. And you reminded Mm -hmm. me of that rule. And that's the only reason I didn't pass you at the end is because I still wanted to coach. I'm kidding. But do you have that? Do you have that rule? Because basically if you teach somebody all the things that you believe in your foundation, you make them so good that they beat you, then, then they're cut off, right? You, you pull the rug out from underneath them. Is that, is that how it works? That's always what I said, but I never meant it. I guess I meant it in different percentages throughout the years. The first time I said it, I fully intended that none of my athletes would ever beat me because that would be a, a sign of a failure as, a, as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And the longer I coach, the more I realize the best thing you can do as a coach is, is coach people to beat you because that's a, it's not a, a failure as an athlete. It's a success as a coach. But I just mm-hmm. kept saying, I always said it, but no, people beat me all the time. And nothing ever happened. I just like to, to bark and make a lot of noise that, you know, the moment you beat me, you're gone. We're through. Yeah. All right. That's I never, never dropped an athlete for beating me. I'm, right. I'm thrilled if an athlete can beat me. All right. I just want to make sure that was, so it's not a thing anymore. No, no, that never was. I had a couple toe in the line in the elite field in, um, in Asheville. And, uh, some of those got the talk beforehand. Just saying, you, know, you pass that on to me. Come up on me with a quarter to go. You got to make a business decision. <laughs> exactly. Are you ready to strike out on your own or do you want to keep working together? <laughs> you understand. 
Uh, yeah. All right. Should we uh, should we jump into today's topics, Sir Bracken? Yeah. I actually want to say one plug. We normally make our plugs at the end of the episodes. We make like a quick plug, like go buy t-shirts, da, da, da. But we have not talked about our damn running public training plan nearly enough and how good it is and how basically free it is. And the people that are on that plan that are going out and crushing races every single weekend. How many podiums? I don't know how many from people following that damn plan. Like if you if it's lost top of mind for you and we're heading into championship season, go get on our running public training plan. It's twenty dollars a month, five bucks extra for a strength add-on. You go to the runningpublic.com, click on training plan, and there she yep. is. Just do it. Yeah. If you had if you're thinking about it, or if you're just curious, dip your dip your toe in the water. Sign up for a month and cancel right away. But like this is good training. We're we're training you to beat us. We are. And, and just a refresher for people, it follows the U.S. National Series for Spartan Race. However, if you are not racing it, there is a time trial in place of any race day we put on there. So, for example, West Virginia is coming up. If you're not racing West Virginia, there are two options, either do a one-mile time trial or a 60-minute max vert test. Mm -hmm. So everything's trained towards progressing your fitness in a way that mirrors the U.S. National Series, but in a way that's really helps anyone. And, and it's not like you're going to have nothing waiting for you on race day. If you're not racing, we'll have, we'll have plenty of chances for you to go make it spicy. Well, and I will say that the, uh, our numbers are growing on that without us really reminding you of it. And if our numbers are growing, people are getting on board and then staying on board. It means that something good is happening there. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's a good, you know, testament to how things are going on the running public training plan. So take a look at it. Think about it. It's a good plan. Now we can move on. Kirk, let's kick off the Q&A. And this has never, ever happened before. We had all our, we, we went through and screenshot questions right prior to this. And just as I'm about to talk, we have a message popped in on my phone. And I'm just going to start with that one. This guy got it in just in the nick of time. James Hall, I believe he's UK. Okay. Coming to us from across the pond. I have three races back-to-back -back weekends in October, a marathon, a Spartan beast, and then a half marathon. What should the strategy in the week between them to make sure I turn up as fresh as possible? A marathon, a beast, and a half marathon? Yes. And so again, for the non-OCR non world, the Spartan beast is a 13-ish mile obstacle race. So marathon, half, half. Was this three weeks in a row or three months in a row? Can you refresh me on that? Back to back to back weekends in October. <laughs> marathon, one week, OCR half marathon, one week, trail or road half marathon. You have yourself a big three weeks there, son. Um, I'll, I'll kick it off if you don't mind. Uh, Do it. First of all, these are all long endurance events that are roughly the first two. I, this would actually look a lot different if you were kicking it off with a half marathon or the half marathon was in the middle, but you're, let's say, the least amount of damaging event is your last one. So the, the first two are, are kind of taking the cake here. And all it is is about getting back to homeostasis. The training in between is not called training. It's called recovery. And you're going to only throw yourself a small dose of turnover between each of those races on like a Wednesday, accumulating no more than 10 to 15 minutes of quality work at most faster than race pace. And everything else is going to be cross training and recovery runs. You can't possibly fully recover, in my opinion, like fully, fully recover. But your best chance of that 
is like no more than 12-ish minutes of quality work in between all three of those on one day. And the rest is just easy, breezy, breezy, breezy stuff. That would be my first like broad stroke answer. I agree with it. The only other thing I could say is to maybe even water it down even further. Right. The opposite order, half marathon, half marathon, marathon would obviously be ideal. Correct. Since you can't control that, I would be doing nothing but recovery and strides in between. I wouldn't even do quality work. My, my, my running would only be strides with long recovery in between. The fitness is there. It's not going to change. If you can recover, you'll actually get physical adaptation on your fitness from these monster events. So I would be in pure whatever I have to do to recover mode and maybe twice each week try strides, maybe like Wednesday, Thursday or Thursday, Friday before the events and just go 100% in on resting and then knock the rust off with strides. If I have two big weekends back to back, which I've done, I would do if it's a Saturday race, Sunday's completely off. Monday, if I'm real trash, I might take that off too or get on the bike. Tuesday is going to be an easy bike or a short, easy run. So really, sometimes I wouldn't even run until Wednesday. I'd take Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off, maybe two cross training days in there, run Wednesday. That would be my spicy, quick little, just to shake the body. Then another shakeout run Friday before your next big event. And like, that's, that's it. You might only accumulate an hour or two hours of running total that whole week in between. And that's all you can really do. I, I don't know. Don't worry about training is what the point is, I think. Don't worry about – you're not trying to gain fitness anymore. You're just trying nope. to get back to homeostasis. Really, you're spending those three weeks recovering from your marathon. Right. You just happen to have a race in between. So that's it. You rec- that marathon sets you back significantly, and your goal is just to undo as much as possible. That's it. Yeah. We could cloud the waters by talking all sorts of things, nutrition and sleep, and da, 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 but I don't think we need to. No. So we can make a whole episode out of that. We don't we don't have that kind of time, Bracken. Good luck. I don't envy you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should I roll with one? Roll it. Mike says, hill running question for you. I've got old man atrophy ass compounded by desk jockey atrophy ass. So <laughs> old man, desk job, lost his ass. As a result, I have issues engaging my glutes for regular running and especially hill running. For example, I have zero burn regarding, regardless of hill intensity. Do you have any suggestions um, for getting my flat ass to engage? Meaning like run form, posture, techniques, mental cues, etc. Put me in, coach. You're in. I am someone who naturally has no butt and no engagement. And I had to go through this. And here is the tried and true Bracken Crocker relearn how to have and use a butt process. The first thing is you must be touching it at all times while you're exercising. Okay. The only way to truly know if it's doing anything is to touch it. Like run up the hill, cupping your own ass cheeks. I can't even tell you how many times I did that in Colorado over the course of two or three weeks until I could then feel in my actual butt what it felt like when my hand was touching it and could feel it firing. Okay. I would run out through the canyon, get out of sight, find this little climb I kept using, and then I'd run uphill with my fingertips resting on my glutes. Why did you wait to get out of sight before you did that? Why didn't you just do that? Oh, no real reason. (laughs) You weren't ashamed of your own loneliness? Okay. Listen, Colorado was filled with mountain 
animals <laughs> and you're running up i'm gonna get judged for being uh you know in air quotes an overweight runner to begin with in the mountains they're all better mountain goats than i am and now i'm running up gripping my butt cheeks <laughs> i like that visual i that's really what i did and and it took a few runs i'd be doing it i'd feel it I'd, it wouldn't be moving and then i'd start moving my legs a little different and then i could feel my butt cheeks clenching and, and contracting and well, relaxing. What was, what was the mental engagement from your head to your ass? Like, how do you tell it to do so? I, I didn't know how to. That's the thing. It, that process wasn't there. So I just kept playing around with it, just trying different motions and, and cues and tricks until I just could feel it. And then I'd feel it and I'd be running thinking, all right, that's good. And then I'd stop feeling it. And then I'd have to go through that over and over. And eventually you develop whatever that is. With me, I had to think about pushing down into the ground from my butt all the way down to my feet. That was just my process. My, I'm, I'm pushing into the ground with my glutes. It's not, it's not a great cue. That's just what it ended up feeling like in my mind. When I was doing it right, my glutes were pushing me into the ground or away from the ground. But it took a while. So feel your butt is your, is your answer? That's, that's the first part. That's the first part. That's the active running part. Running uphill it can be on a treadmill or whatever. And just, it doesn't have to be the whole time, but be hiking or running and say, I either think I am, you play a game. I am or I am not right now. Are they firing or are they not? And then you feel it. And then it confirms or denies. And then you keep doing that until eventually the feeling is always matching up to what's actually happening. And then you don't have to be weird anymore. This isn't a facetious question. Where in your butt do you feel? Because your butt, you know, even if you don't have much of one, you have like where your glutes and your hamstrings connect on there. Then you have what you call like your runner's butt, which is really like your piriformis or something like that, which is higher. Like when you're talking about feeling, then you have the cheeks, the meat, the peaches, right? What are we feeling? Yeah. What do we need to be working? I, I mean, I was, I was rubbing everything. My hands are everywhere, Kirk. All right. You weren't lonely or nothing. That wasn't a byproduct of like... Uh, no, but it, it started with... Like I, I had to explore. I'd be like, is this where it should be? Is this, is this? And then, I mean, we've all run behind someone with a big butt when they're running. You could be like, that's working. I know what that looks like. That's how this should mm -hmm. be doing it. And I, you start there. So then that gets paired with lunges, Bulgarian split squat. And I like front squat for glute engagement. Okay. And you want to find out where your ass is. Do a proper Bulgarian split squat where you get low and you sink mm -hmm. back towards the bench or the box in that motion. And it is all your ass that gets you out of the hole. Like your knee is a centimeter off the ground. You're that low in that Bulgarian split squat. And you're going to find out where your butt is and you're going to learn to like feel that through. That's probably the most isolating movement other than like a hip bridge where it's like, yep, that's my ass. It's a yep. good point. And you can banded monster walks and things like that. All of those are good supplemental work. But if I could do one thing, it would, or two things would be the running and then touch it. And then the Bulgarian split squat. Absolutely. And start slow. You start slow and you focus on clenching and engaging up and down. You may not get it for a few reps. And the thing with Bulgarian split squat is a lot of people, if you're doing it unweighted, rest their hands on their hips anyways. Mm -hmm. It's not a big change to just rotate your hands back a little bit and rest them on your cheeks and you can actually feel am i doing what i'm trying to do so bulgarian split squats and hiking and touch yourself until you don't have to anymore well if you're not comfortable groping yourself in public i uh i have one thing that i've noticed for me that changed 
my ass has gotten bigger over the last few years and it's completely happened because of the change in my uphill technique. And mm -hmm. the reason it's changed is because I'm engaging my glutes more. And that is simply, I'm a natural forward leaner. I let gravity propel me forward when I run, you know, uh, but I really worked and on the hills that was exaggerated. And as soon as I worked on running more upright on the hills, like staying in an upward stance instead of a forward lean, um, I noticed that my glutes engage a lot better. What happens when you lean super far forward is your rear, your, uh, like your rear chain, like your hamstrings take a lot of the brunt and your erector spinae and your back, especially your low back, take a lot of it. And it like skips the butt, like the butt gets forgotten about if you get that big forward lean. So if you try to run upright more and run a little taller and prouder while going uphill, even very steep grades, I notice a big difference in how much my ass is working. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, it's it's still working with a forward lean. Like I don't think like your glutes are engaged at all time in some capacity. It's just like to what degree, right? But mm -hmm. I notice upright form has been a big difference maker for me. And since I started doing that, my ass has grown. And so there's definitely a correlation there. Um, yeah. So that's that's uh, my one non-grope uh, yourself uh, suggestion. Yeah. I mean, if you have to avoid it, that's that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Should I move to the next? You've got one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll move on here. Question regarding choosing the terrain to run on. This person does OCR and trail races. So I do all my training. Wait, for example, blah, blah, blah. okay. I, this person does all their training on the trails with some treadmill sprinkled in, but they wonder if they shouldn't be getting on the road or track more often. Should they be going to the track for interval sessions so they can comp compare splits or a little of both? I guess this is a long way of asking what's the best way to determine if a run should be done trails, track, treadmill, or road. Thank you for all that you do. Five stars. Five stars. Appreciate it. Go post that on iTunes. Please do. Uh, I guess it, first, the first thing is, well, what is the terrain of the races you have coming up? I think yep. that's the one thing that we don't know here, but I think the answer is yes. Like the answer to all components. Do I think that there's place on the track for a trail athlete? Absolutely. Especially if you're one who does struggle with turnover and efficiency. Um, you know, Chris Brown in our last interview said something that I actually subscribe to myself and that is like his intuitive training. He's like, I can feel my body needs this, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And I know you have a yeah. bit of that as well. Like you may not have expected it before we started recording. What did I tell you? My body needed more of in training. We just had this conversation before we started recording uphill grinding on your treadmill. Correct. It, suddenly it had come to me and I bet you, sir or ma'am, this is sir, I think, like if you listen to your gut on this, you're like, what, what piece isn't fitting the puzzle correctly? Or where do I feel lacking? Lead the way with that when you make your decisions on, on what terrain you choose. And then the, by the ways can be the ones where you feel like things are going pretty well on. So like, I think intuition as an athlete is huge. And I think that listening to that, you probably have some gut instinct there. So that would be like my step one. And then, of course, matching it to the upcoming demands of your race. That's where yes. I start. My personal take is that you have to be prepared for the terrain of your race. That's not rocket science by any means. But so almost all of my quality occurs on something that will help me for the terrain. Right. Now, a treadmill, I still count as that. If it's an uphill race and I'm doing treadmill work, that still counts, but it always has to be paired with the actual thing. And I, I look to, I talk about Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon Project a lot. Um, and and they've he's banned for life now from coaching. 
And so if there's anyone you can trust to do whatever it takes to make your athletes good, it's someone who's banned for life because they will do anything it takes to get better. And he had his athletes running as much of their volume on soft trails as possible. Can you say why? For simply the wear and tear of training. His thought was if it truly is supposed to be a recovery run, we shouldn't incur damage during that. He balanced that out by they were spiked up on the track for their quality days. Three days a week. Yeah, and they would do a threshold run on the roads and their flats, come back, spike up, and finish with intervals. Like they ran quality work in spikes on the track. They got all their resistance to impact and their sports-specific training on their quality days, but they were on the Alter-G treadmill, on a grass field, or on dirt trails in Oregon, or those, those soft like needle-based trails that they have out there as much as they could. So if he can get away with that, we can get away with that for a sport that is primarily off-road, whether it's trail racing or OCR. So yeah, I believe get off-road as often as possible. And the question about the track for speed, it took me a while to come to this conclusion because I was a track guy. I don't think it matters. You had asked me before in a long ago episode, where would I work on speed if I had to only work on speed? And I said a straight bike path or on the treadmill. I don't think the track's actually even good for working on speed for people who don't run track because you're only working on left-hand turns and you get lulled into that start the interval fast, coast through the middle, maybe run a little differently on the turns and then rev it up towards the end. Treadmills, you don't do that. Bike paths, you don't do that. So I think you can get your speed done anywhere. And if you run technical terrain intervals, if you just keep running that same terrain, you can compare your interval times to each other throughout workouts. So... I don't know. I don't think I ever will touch a track again unless I'm preparing for something on a track or doing a time trial. I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think that the time trial or the time trial is the one place, like it's an objective measure where you can go back to and there's no question as to undulation or elevation change or terrain change. So that is, it still serves its place when you just want to come back and get a, a checkpoint. I would say like mm-hmm. with, if you're going to err on any side, any side at all, the side of erring on soft terrain is going to be like the one thing that I think every athlete should do. Like, should I run on firm terrain or soft terrain, even though I know I'll be slower today? The answer is always soft terrain because of the longevity piece. And also when we run on firm terrain, what happens is we get like a huge return force from the earth because it just pushes back into our stride and we're more efficient that way. When you run on soft terrain, you have to create that power and create like a more like powerful, push through type stride because the earth is not returning your investment nearly as much as like hard concrete. And so that can actually improve like knee drive efficiency. And then so what, if you get on a hard pack trail, you're just going to feel it that much more smooth and that much more effortless. So like erring on the side of caution of soft terrain kind of is a win-win. Like if you never could run on a road again, but you were still even training for road racing, I still think you could improve upon that by never running on the roads. Yes. Because I think it's only win-win-win when it comes to soft terrain. Fully agree. Yeah. This, my core tenets of what's necessary in training are in order, intensity, recovery, skill, terrain. That's it. I don't have pace in there. I don't have percentages of mixed uh, modalities. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about location. It is intensity, recovery, skill, and terrain. And mm-hmm. skill and terrain kind of will play off of each other. If you're hitting the right intensity and you're recovering from from it and you're working on the skill needed for your terrain, the pace doesn't really matter. 
at the end of the day because your intensity that you've spent in training will match the intensities you need on race day. So I don't think you need to be too concerned of, I'm trying to hit 510 pace because that's what my VO2 max calculator says is my VO2 max pace. And so I must run on a, a, a type of ground that allows me to hit 510 pace because that's what my VO2 max is. I think that's, that's worrying about a problem that doesn't even need to exist. You can run VO2 max intensity just fine on any terrain you could ever find. And that's what's more important. The more you remove yourself, like the purest is track, second purest is road, then cross country, then trail, then off-road. The more you remove yourself from the purest unbroken style of running, the less you need to concern yourself with actual pace. 100%. Little little rant that didn't, maybe not rant, but a little soapbox there that didn't totally correlate. But I think it's important to remember. You were in the right to stand on that soapbox, Bracken. I built that soapbox with my own bare hands. I will uh, ask one. This gentleman had um, a number of questions, or woman, Racer Davis, but there's just the one I wanted to um, one I wanted to address, and it was uh, he talked about a time trial that that they had done, but in this time trial, they noticed that my brain slash eyesight can fail to process information quick enough to spot foot landing site or distinguish between steps. This resulted in a bad ankle sprain when I got tired right at the end. Do you have any thoughts on supplementary ways to train the brain eyes to process terrain changes at speed? I was at max speed down some steps trying to beat my personal best. Who's saying like, how do you, how do you, how do you navigate the brain body connection on those steep ones? I'm going to start by answering the question he didn't ask or she. They want supplementary work. I'm going to give you actionable things for that race. The first is that brain fog leads to that. We've all been to that point where we realize I can't work at that intensity anymore because I'm too tired to do it. Mm -hmm. And so staying on top of hydration and nutrition staves off brain fog. The second is doing actual work on actual nasty terrain when you're actually fatigued. A lot of times we do our technical work until we start to break down and realize it's probably not safe anymore. And then you move on to some other, maybe finish the workout on a less technical portion, but that's the part you got to put in. So I'm going to start by answering not that question. You want to answer the actual question? I agree with your non-answering of that question. Okay. Um, in fact, I would consider that like part of my actual answer to the question. So I think the, I think the big distinguisher here is this, is that you know, you can never be prepared for race demands if fully, if you haven't forced your body to do that in training. So in this, in a different way, I'm saying the same thing. And that is how often in training are you getting to the point where you're seeing stars and you're in race mode and you're descending technical terrain? Uh, my guess is probably not very often. Most people don't. And so recreating that race circumstance and just getting more familiar with it will probably make that work better. We say this about like, um, it's a weird correlation I'm going to make here, but like altitude training or elevation acclimation, you know, you can go out there and you can go out for a race two weeks early. Let's say you live at sea level and you go to elevation early to acclimating quotes. Science shows us physiologically, barely anything has changed in, th in two weeks, like hardly moved the needle. And if it has, it's moved backwards. Correct. Potentially. But what science and physiology doesn't tell you in those first two weeks is that your body becomes familiar with how it just feels to run at elevation and manage effort. So every day for two weeks, when you go out to train, 
your body and your mind understand what's about to happen to you. And then on race day, it's not such a shock. And that way you can at least sink your teeth into the effort because your body feels and is familiar with running at elevation. You're not acclimated yet, but you're familiar with it. And that same concept goes with like, let's say technical downhill running. It's like, you need to just get out there and put yourself in the situation and do it. And eventually, at least you're going to be familiar with that feeling of headiness and lack of focus so much so that you might actually become comfortable in that state of mind. And then when you're comfortable in that state of mind, you can dig into the effort. Did that make sense? You follow me there? It does. And really, my answer to all of this is that it's fitness. It's fitness. If you can do it fresh... The only reason you can't do it fatigued is because you're running out of fitness towards the end. And when I say you, I mean the, the, in the nameless, faceless runner. It happens to me at the end of workouts and races where I realize I can't bomb these technical sections anymore. But it's not because I don't have the skill. It's because I fatigue to the point where I can't access that skill. So mm-hmm. greater fitness is needed to be able to keep doing those things at the end. And it comes back to Dr. Fred Clary, the 120% rule. If you can train at that type of terrain when you're more fatigued than you'll get in a race, you can do it on race day. So that might be hitting technical descents at the end of a two and a half hour long run. It might mean getting to the top of your mountain on your, on reps and doing 150 body weight squats or jump lunges or tuck jumps until your legs are so full with blood that you can barely lift them off the ground. And now you hit a technical descent. That way your your mind's not foggy, but your legs sure are. And you have to work on getting your legs to respond through fatigue because your skill is there. You just have to be able to access it later. So all those things with flashing lights where you tap your hands back and forth or star drills on the ground with your feet doing plyometric work, would that be helpful? Probably. But I think your time would be better served working on your fitness unless you're truly a clumsy, uncoordinated person. And there are a lot of us in the running world who are clumsy or uncoordinated. And then, yeah, you have to do them both. You got to work on some coordination and proprioception drills, but time on feet kind of trumps everything. Yeah. No ladder drills. No, none of that. It's not, you know, a one-to-one translation. I think you're exactly right. I think we leave it there. Keep it like, keep it at that. Yeah. Question for the podcast from Scott Zanini. Woo. Scott's an old friend. Question of the podcast. I run my recovery and easy runs off of heart rate. What percentage ranges do y'all use to calculate zones? I see everything from 7%, i.e. 93 to 100% is zone 5, to 10%, 90 to 100% is zone 5. Thanks and love the podcast. Well, Scott, I can only answer for myself personally, and I only have two heart rate zones. It's not true, but continue. That I use. I only use my heart rate to tell me two things. Am I below my aerobic threshold or not? And am I at or above my anaerobic threshold? That's it. So I don't do five zones. I do two zones and all the rest are intensities or paces. Okay. I know I said paces are less important, but for some things I use them. If I'm working zone five, I'm generally trying to target a pace or a feeling, not a heart rate. Because heart rate is, this is where I believe the heart rate zones start to break down in effectiveness. Because in a zone five heart rate, to get your heart rate up to 90 or 93% of max or above, you have to be working so incredibly hard 
that by the time you get your heart rate there, you're on borrowed time. You can't do much work at that. And mm -hmm. so your intensity can be a zone five intensity, but your heart rate, you know, let's say for three minutes you get there, but your heart rate might only be there for a minute of that. So which one would you track? When does your interval start? And it's very difficult to get your heart rate up in time before the interval ends. So that's why I don't use that. I do threshold based intervals and I do my aerobic runs below my aerobic threshold, but that's all I use heart rate for. It's an interesting point about like zone five, getting there, staying there, spending time in it. It takes so much extended work over time. I get a lot of questions about like, should I be getting into zone five in my intervals? I don't seem to be in there very much, but I think I worked as hard as I could. It's like, you know how you get into zone five? You run a 30 minute tempo run and then you intentionally blow up from 30 to 40 minutes and run all out like you have a minute left in the race. And then you sit in it. Like the only way to get into zone five and sit there is to like do an oopsie, to yeah. be honest, or add some sort of race effort where everything aligns, right? So I agree with that sentiment. For those of you who worry about not getting into zone five enough, that is a very hard earned zone to get into. And just because you went out and worked super hard in your interval sessions and you saw one minute and 30 seconds total of zone five and you're like, that's nothing. That doesn't mean you didn't work hard. It just means like that stimulus wasn't meant to do that. So like even dipping in it in a workout is actually a, a very hard thing to do at times. Yeah. And that's not the question, but I think it's a point worth making. Yeah. So I guess we don't follow five zones. I follow five zones of intensity and I follow two to three zones of heart rate and I don't worry about heart rate for the others. My example of this would be one of the pioneers of heart rate, uh, less heart rate training, but VO2 max training is billet. And the training that billet popularized was the 30, 30, 60, 60, 90, 90 progression. Mm -hmm. One of the things that were talked about in those studies are the fact that it takes in a 30 second interval, you're rarely going to get your heart rate up immediately. But then once you start resting, your heart rate stays up and it starts to climb down. And so you keep getting the benefit of the 30 on during your 30 off Correct. and you ramp back up. And as the workout goes on, you spend a higher percentage on, but you're still benefiting from a heart rate perspective while you're not moving. Yep. But if that workout was done by heart rate, you couldn't do it. So one of the masters of VO2 max talks about your heart rate is not indicative of the work that's happening during the workout. And that's probably the most famous, I would say, VO2 max workout is 30-30s or 60-60s, and they can't even be done by heart rate. So that, that just highlights my belief in the flaw of doing only heart rate-based training. Heart rate-based is fantastic for lower-end work. I have two, I guess, really. I guess, as okay. you said, that's, uh, am I at recovery, heart rate, or below? And I know what I need to do there. Or maybe once in a while, if I really want to do a true threshold run, I get into my threshold zone and I stay there. But if I have a hard interval day and I'm doing mile repeats, do you think I'm checking my watch to see what my heart rate is? Hell no. That's a waste of time. I am running hard and hard. will The results will show me what they show me at the end of the workout. So it's two calculated things. And my calculated things are once in a while, a threshold run and a recovery run. But the rest is semantics, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. All right. We're on the same page there, Kirky. Shocking. Should I roll to the next? Roll it. Jason Dominger says, question for your next Q&A. At races or during hard Metcons, I notice people collapsing at the finish line and laying down in complete exhaustion. I may stagger around and really suck wind and pain, but I've never collapsed to the ground. 
Does this mean I truly never empty the tank or is collapsing a learned behavior in quotes? I think I read something a few years ago that collapsing to the ground will teach your brain that the current effort was your max. Do you think this is valid? I love this question because it's a personal pet peeve of mine. I'm going to say yes across the board. Yes, you probably haven't fully emptied your tank. Yes, it is a learned behavior. And yes, it teaches your body to believe in the work it just did. I feel that most of us probably never fully empty our tank because if you actually did, you would run yourself into a blackout. And most of us don't do that. Also, yes, I think a lot of people are super dramatic when they cross the line. And it's absolutely a learned behavior because certain sports do it other more than others. However, Kirk, before we get into the things that I usually talk about, I had this conversation with my brother, Macaulay, who was in from Budapest last week. Uh, first time we've talked in three years or seen each other in three years. And we ended up talking about collapsing at the end of races. And he talked about there are some studies that have shown that women are more susceptible to changes in blood pressure and that they tend to have the changes more drastically and quicker than men. And he said that's one of the current thoughts on why female cross-country runners and skiers and track athletes collapse at the finish more than men do or stagger in is because when they have their actual big exertion shifts, their blood pressure drops quicker. And mm -hmm. so when they kick to the end and then let go, they actually have like a, a drop in blood pressure and they're more susceptible to actually having to either faint or get close to it and lay down to avoid it. Yeah, I buy into that. That's something I had not heard before. And so thank you, Macaulay, for giving me something new to look at. Women are mysterious beings, aren't they, Bracken? They are. They really are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. Um, I, I agree. It's a learned behavior. First of all, yes. I also say to back up what you had said, like if you watch the NCAA women's cross country finals in the last hundred meters of a race, you will see people with Bambi legs and then falling and crawling and getting up and falling. That is true. That happens. And that's not learned. No, that is not, that is not a choice. They want to get to that finish line more than anything. So that is a physiological thing where it happens once in a while. Can somebody time that to the point is when they cross the finish line that their body physiologically gives out on them absolutely but i think nine out of nine out of ten 99 out of 100 times that collapse is a choice and it's okay it's not bad of course what feels better after a hard effort than completely relaxing every muscle in your body and just unloading i understand it but it it doesn't indicate i don't believe it indicates the effort that was just given compared no. to somebody who crosses the finish line and stays on their feet i think it has zero indicator i feel like that's a person's choice and I don't and I don't feel like they deserve more credit because they ran so hard they collapsed than the guy who crosses the finish line and is exhausted but chooses to stay on his feet. I just don't buy into it. I don't. No. And here's why. The way let's go to back to Dr. Fred Cleary. Is that the way the body works? Does the body go from maximum exertion to collapse like that? No, there is a there is a slowdown process. When you watch people who actually collapse due to being not conscious, they have this staggery thing that happens. Their face starts to change, their form starts to change, they start to weave, their legs go rubbery, and then you fall. 
even when you get knocked out, like in a fight, sometimes it's clean and sometimes your body goes on autopilot for a little bit where they stagger around a rubber leg before they actually collapse. So kicking to the finish, leaning and then collapsing is not the way you lose consciousness. It's just not. The people who collapse because they went rubbery legged first, they ran themselves till there is nothing left. If you are accelerating through the finish line and then collapsing, you have something left because you could have made it one more step or one more step because then you would have started to decelerate and decelerate and then black out and then gone down. So that's not a judgment against people who collapse, but don't mistake that for saying they tried harder than I did because unless they actually passed out, they had something left too. 100%. Yeah, you put a bow tie on that. I feel the same. Do I do I judge people who collapse? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. If it's if it's rubber legged, oh my goodness, that is incredible. I have gotten down on my knees after three races in my life and all three were due to dehydration or or the beginnings of um heat exhaustion or the beginnings of heat stroke. The later stages of heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Two out of the three have been in Dubai. <laughs> so wow. I've been there and I have run races where I gave everything I absolutely had. But other than the one time I passed out on course, I've never actually truly emptied the tank. Even the days that I was getting dizzy towards the end and had to take a seat once I crossed the line, I was still running up until that point. I crossed the line, stopped, and then sat down. So I probably could have gone another tenth of a mile, which means I didn't empty the tank. (laughs) Do we ever, though? If you're conscious, you didn't empty the tank. We're not promoting running yourself into oblivion. But the idea that someone absolutely gave it their all because they're lying down on their own accord uh, cheapens the person's experience who decided to remain on their feet. Agreed. Hey, fellas, I've got a potential Q&A question. At one point or another, we've all been in the situation of cramping, mostly due to not being prepared with the proper type slash volume of training. Great. You are correct. Most cramps come from muscle exhaustion, not electrolyte imbalance or dehydration. Preach again. Most cramps do not occur due to electrolyte imbalance or dehydration. They occur because your muscles were not prepared for the task you asked them to complete. Yes. Good. If this situation happens early in the season and you know you're not, you don't have enough time to prepare for your next race and be confident that you won't cramp, is there a way to mitigate it while balancing performance? My initial thought would be slower pace e- equals less chance of cramps. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's my answer. Yes. But wondering if you had a more refined, educated answer, thanks in advance. To be clear, I'm not talking about cramps related to salt, potassium, other nutrient deficiencies, but strictly muscle fatigue. Well, at least you, uh, yeah, you covered your excuse bases there and acknowledged the, uh, the falsalities, which are a pet peeve when it comes to cramps. So thank you for that. And those cramps are different. The, the, yeah, they are different. Totally different. They hit you and you feel them different. If you've ever been truly dehydrated or had nutrient imbalances, it's, it is a different feeling of cramp, but you've got to feel both before you know it. So I'm not judging people who think that they cramp because of salt tablets, but it's important to note that fitness covers most cramping situations. If you can't put the time on feed in, which I'm understanding is the question, uh, or maybe you're not healthy enough to put the time in, in training, but you still think you could one off the race. The only thing I can even think of, and I'm stretching it, is in a, in the gym or in a yeah. weight room sense. Is the only thing I can think of. If you know where your tendencies are to cramp, 
you beat the shit out of that muscle in the gym in the most running biomechanical way that you can think of that would translate and you cross your fingers is what yeah. you do. That's all I can come up with. That's exactly correct. Yeah. You have to, if you can't, let's say you, in a scenario I'm picturing is that your buddies talk you into a race, a mountain marathon in six weeks and you've been running 15 miles per week flat and you know, I'm going to cramp at some point in this race because I can't handle that up and downhill work, especially the pounding. You can't run enough in six weeks to prevent those cramps. You run as much as you can and you're right. You attack it in the gym. And there are many ways to do it. You just find the one that works for you. For me, I found that high rep, super high rep, long circuits help me. Like 10 to 15, almost like a, like a bar class where you're doing micro pulses for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, up to 50 or 100 reps at a time, just blowing out an area. For me, that works well with cramp prevention because mm -hmm. you can target one area. If my outer hip and glute area cramp, I can sit in a, a, a quarter lunge and just pulse an inch up, an inch down, and just fire that one area as much as I want to until I physically can't rest for 10 seconds and do it again. That type of thing is for me, the best way of cramp preventing outside of actually just having time to put the work in. Yeah. I think we're on the same page there again, Bracken. Good thing we started a podcast together. Bar class. Bar class is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I think yeah. while I'm doing it, I always think this is what it feels to be at the top of a thousand foot climb. <laughs> well, bar class is the, I guess the short answer then. Yeah. Everyone go to bar class. Uh, this one, I don't have a lot to add to, but I thought maybe you might have some thoughts because your former co-host, Benny Gifford, what are you oh, reading? Kirk, <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt us. I'm never on my phone during these things, so I never see random things happen, but because we have our phones up, I just got an, an audible, uh, push notification from audible and your audiobook is waiting. Your next audiobook, pregnant by my sister's baby daddy too. <laughs> my sister's baby dad. what what have you been looking up lately i well here's the thing i log into ian caskey's sister-in-law's account <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not sure what ian caskey has been reading on his long runs but apparently pregnant by my sister's baby daddy one was recently on his long run mix because now they think he's ready for the follow-up I mean, that's just irresponsible to get pregnant a second time by your sister's baby daddy. Ian, you have some explaining to do. And last plot twist, your husband is your sister's baby daddy. And this is just your second marital pregnancy. How many subscription-based uh, media do you leech from your friends? <laughs> None. Right. <laughs> just, that, just that one. I'm the just one that gets leeched from. I can't tell you how many times I'm on Netflix and says, sorry. You hear too many screens watching on your account. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Who all has my account? Um, weed and CBD. This might be a good one for your next Q&A. I was wondering if you had researched weed and CBD and how they can affect training and recovery. My feeling is that CBD doesn't really do much for you in general. Weed releases some pain. I use it sometimes at night to disconnect from work and relax. But I've read that it can go against muscular growth just like any other anti-inflammatory drug. What do you got? Are we answering this according to current social societal norms or are we given our true feelings unfiltered? True feelings unfiltered. That's why they, people listen. My personal feeling, Kirk, 
we haven't ruffled feathers with some of our stances in a while. I'm going to ruffle feathers. My personal feeling is that CBD is a scam. I think that it's about as effective as anything else that is um, non-prescription based. I don't think that Tylenol or Advil is a scam because it's it's not supposed to be a savior drug, but I think it's limitedly, limitedly, limitedly effective. <laughs> I know I'm eroding my comment by saying the word limitedly, but it has limited effectiveness. CBD has limited effectiveness and the results are all overblown because they've chosen to make this the biggest influencer based promotion on the history of our planet. And of course, everyone has anecdotal event or uh, experiences and comments that it has changed their life because they're getting it free or they're getting paid to do it. I just think it's a scam. I think that if you understand, you can treat it like an anti-inflammatory or a minor sleep aid, sure. It's not a miracle drug. Well, I think the best way to reduce overall bodily inflammation is to not eat shitty food and eat good food, eat alkaline, healthful foods. That'll do more than anything. we're just bringing it back to like if CBD is really about reducing inflammation and weed is about reducing inflammation, then there's a lot of other ways to do it that don't involve those products. I don't think they're any better nor worse than any. Um, maybe there's some less side effects. Is taking two ibuprofen a day the same anti-inflammatory effect as taking droplets of CBD a day? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And does maybe ibuprofen have it harder on your kidneys and liver than CBD? Maybe. So maybe there's there's something there, but I, I just don't have enough experience and I don't like how weed makes me feel. So I don't smoke it. So that, yeah. that's does weed have some, does marijuana have medical uses? Absolutely. But the mat, vast majority of people out there just want an excuse to smoke weed and that's fine. Do what you want to do, but be honest about it. I think, I think anxiety and nausea are two of the places that it's been shown to be most effective, but I don't know. I think that we're we're always grasping either for the thing justification for what we want to do or we're grasping for a magic fix and CBD is not a magic fix. Can it help? Certainly, but it's not a magic fix. And this gentleman does say he uses weed uh, sometimes at night to disconnect from work and to relax. He's not making excuses, right? He's just curious. Yeah. yeah more. You got more? I, I, have, I have no judgment. Just I just don't want CBD to be seen as a miracle drug. Yeah, I agree. All right. I got a long one. Okay. Do the heart rate zones slash intensities apply across modalities while oxygen uptake and utilization differ between them? Okay. First, I'm going to stop right there. Do heart rate zones slash intensities apply across modalities? Those are two different questions in my mind. Heart rate zones do not apply across modalities. However, intensities do. That's my initial take. Are you in agreement or disagreement on that? I think I need a little more explanation. So if if you went and did a running VO2 max test and you got your heart rate zones, would those heart rate zones apply with the correct intensity and blood lactate accumulation in the pool, on the bike, on the assault bike, on the rower, on any other modality? Would Would, let's say if 181 is your VO2 max heart rate, according to your test, is it 181 in the pool, on the bike, on the rower, on the assault bike, or does it vary piece to piece? You tell me, I don't know. 
No, it is not the same. And I think that's my biggest issue with Phil Maffetone's work is that he claims your math heart rate is the same on the bike in the pool and on land. And I don't believe it can be for a multitude of reasons, but one, Dr. Fred Clary would say, is that how the body works? Mm-hmm. And you are not fighting gravity on the bike or in the pool, the way you are running, you're not impacting the ground and on the bike and in the pool, you are not dealing with body heat accumulation like you are running. The wind on the bike changes that and the water of the pool changes that. And so it can't possibly be the same systemic stress. And then anecdotally, anyone who's ever wore a heart rate monitor knows that it is way harder to get your heart rate up on the bike than it is running. And the only time those things shift is if you've put in your 10,000 hours on one of those. Cyclists, pro cyclists can get their heart rates up better than they can running because they have an engine that's better matched to that. So no, I don't believe that heart rate zones are the same across the board. Okay. Do you have a retort or a belief or do you not have an, not, not really your passion? I can piggyback that. Well, but just like going back to like the bike versus the swim versus the run. Um, the problem is, is that like, if you're not trained for that certain modality specifically, um, you're going to arrive at muscular fatigue and failure before systemic lactate VO2 max failure. Your quads and glutes are going to burn out on you on the bike if you randomly hop on there to do a VO2 max test well before you're going to reach your engine and engine's capability due to muscular fatigue. So Correct. that's a big missing com- component and, and detachment between the two. But I've read conflicting data, just like you say, your problem with mafetone and other research that's out there. So um, I don't have a ton to add to that, just maybe piggybacking on what you'd said. So he says, studies comparing rowing and running show that the VO2 cost of rowing is higher than it is in running, yet max heart rate is lower in, run- in rowing. Very interesting. Matt Mosman, Mosman at Enduralede has stated the higher the active muscle mass, the higher the VO2 cost. Mm-hmm. That tracks. Yeah. If we could put the same person through VO2 max tests while doing different things, then we get a different VO2 max for each one. You'd have your running VO2 max, your salt bike VO2 max, your rowing VO2 max, et cetera. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I think we're saying, that you can't yeah. possibly, you you test to the level of your fitness and to that of the modality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you have to do. When we have, uh, anecdotally for me, when I have athletes who are injured and I put them on the assault bike, the first thing we do is a 60-minute assault bike test. And that gives us our functional threshold power and some, accor- some correlating heart rate zones for that. What do you do with that average heart? Once you get a 60-minute assault bike max effort, then you get an average heart rate after that. What do you do with that average heart rate number? Well, that to me is the threshold heart rate of, a, of, of what you would find running because I can sustain, I've found higher, longer heart rates on the assault bike than I can running because I don't have the cost of impacting the ground or fighting gravity. So when I did that 60 minute test, my approximate lactate threshold is 173 beats a minute approximately. Yeah. When I did an all out assault bike one hour test, my average heart rate was 173 beats a minute. 60 and 60? One for one. Wow. And I find that that 30-minute heart rate test for running matches people's 60-minute assault bike heart rate. Yeah, I was one-to-one. Well, maybe you're just one of those people who can get a lot out of running for one hour. Yeah, maybe, huh? Anyway, then then I, I, I'd actually base less on heart rate, though, and then we take, we'll do like three by 15 minutes at your one-hour max calories per minute. Sure. And, and it's more of an effort-based thing. But yeah, we, we do a 
a time trial right away on that modality to set up your either intensity or heart rate zones. Anecdotally, I've noticed that working at lactate threshold bike heart rate zone on the assault biker rower feels way more difficult than running in that same heart rate intensity zone. And that's exactly what we're saying, that on the bike, you have to have really what, two muscle groups developed well, and on different exercises, you have to have more. And I would argue that your brain needs to stay way more engaged to keep the throttle there. We're running naturally, we'll bring that heart rate up and keep it there as long as you're somewhat like your brain is somewhat stimulated and engaged with the effort, but on the bike, it is like all focus, all in can't lapse, have to stay on it. Remind yourself to stay on it constantly, sink your teeth into it. And maybe just maybe your heart rate will do what you want it to. Whereas running once it's up there, it's just like freaking there. And that's that. My theory is that it's your arms. Your arms are designed to work in cadence with your legs. And that builds a mental rhythm where on the bike, cause you're holding your arms still, you're just doing like this one plane of, lower body movement and it doesn't develop mental rhythm until you develop your hours and hours of training. I think running, it takes a more coordinated effort and that keeps your brain engaged naturally. Yeah, I buy into that. But that being said, pro cyclists have gotten to the point where they can peg a heart rate. Ugh. That's a different, that's your 10,000 hours thing though. Yeah. Um, Steven Gappert. Hi again. I have a question about the value of time on feet. Is there a correlation between the amount of time on feet standing, walking, and running? I just started a new job that has several severely limited my ultra OCR training during the week. However, I spend six to eight hours on my feet daily, which includes walk, walking four to 10 miles. This is all inside on concrete at the same elevation. I'm only running about 25 miles, road biking about 15 miles, and hitting a heavy leg strength session once per week. However, I was still thinking of training for my first 100 miler since I unfortunately can't make it to WTM this year. Do you think my time on feet at work would help towards this endeavor as a substitute for running to some extent? Thanks, Steven. I bet we had the same reaction, which is we were reading that question with a sinking feeling until we saw what race he was thinking about doing. A long one. The longer your event is, the more even stationary time on feet helps. It strengthens every little tendon, ligament, fiber, sinew in your body as a supporting group. And those supporting groups don't get accessed as much in shorter events because the intensity falls to the major muscle groups and they don't have time to fatigue to the point where you need those little minor supporters. The longer you go, I would say past, the longer you get past three hours, maybe even two, the more those little things come into play. And a hundred miles is all about those little things. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it plays. I mean, I'll just throw it out there. I would argue that like 50K or less, I don't think that time on feet's doing you shit. However, <laughs> 100 miles is a lot longer than that. And it's all about just time on feet, being used to feeling gravity's load on your joints, tendons, ligaments. The weight of the earth without getting horizontal is like a factor you have to think about. So, man, not that I would not try to find a way to get more pertinent time on feet. I don't think... Like we're going to, we'll just exclude that whole argument because it's a large one. I would say it might actually translate a little bit for you. Yeah. The first thing we talk about when I have a conversation, a Zoom call with an athlete who wants to train for a 24-hour event, 12-hour, 24, 36, 72, anything like that is, all right, where can we squeeze in more time on feet? Are you already doing a standing desk? If not, 
sorry, you're going to have to do that. I don't always recommend standing desks for people training for 30 to 60 minute events because we have to do such intense work that sometimes you just need to recover and regenerate. Yeah. You're going to, we're going to try to get you for an, an ultra, ultra event to get to the point where fatigue feels normal. Can we start doing a, a walk behind mower instead of a riding mower? Okay. If we can do that, can we do a, a push self-powered motorless mower instead of that? Can we start walking barefoot while doing that? Like every little thing we can do to squeeze in more time, fatiguing out those other pieces. That's step one of being a great, like all day runner. Yeah. Your thing would be like, like your best bet would be like, get your ass up 30 minutes early, go out and run two miles. Then at lunch, instead of taking your lunch, go out and run another two miles. And in between all that, you're forced to stand on feet at work on cement. And sure, you're running these little two-mile runs. And I know it's annoying to work in sweaty clothes the rest of the day or, you know, all that. But I feel like something like that would translate for such a long time on feet. So um, for my mind goes right away. Absolutely. Go back and listen to the, the TJ Schroffnagel interview about getting up early. Maybe she need to get up early. Yep. That's. I think that's one thing I want to... To, to, to drive home to people that wasn't necessarily the question is that the shorter your event, the more you can be worried about feeling trashed throughout the day. The longer your event, the more you have to look at that like lifestyle training. That It's okay to walk around feeling pretty darn fatigued, going into workouts pretty darn fatigued. For people running 30 to 60 minute races, I want them to be refreshed by their next big workout. For people doing 100 milers, Getting there tired, that's a training stimulus. Yeah, I agree. How many uh, how many questions you got left, Bracken? I'm out. Well, I'm 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 caught, I'm caught like the forest for the trees, Bracken. The baby with the bathwater, Bracken. Yeah, put your baby in the forest. Put my baby in the forest. I'm gonna make sense of that one someday. Um, I got six questions left, but we're also in a time crunch. Okay. Do you have one? Are any of them? just great and on a bang thing or should we just wrap it i think we save them for the next one okay i think we bank them and there's some good ones and i don't want to just gloss over some of these as i'm filtering through them i think they deserve more time than we would give them if we just rushed into it quality or quantity yeah there are six individuals who will listen to this episode and be like what what what's this guys Uh, michael green spartan anthony team moves and ocr Nick Tusa, Brett T-Rex Milks, and Denise Hahn, you are the ones. Those are the ones who are like, WTF, mate. Well, now you know. We'll get to them later. Good luck milking that T-Rex. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that what I said there? Oh, yeah. Brett Milks, the T-Rex. like to see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine milking a T-Rex. I, I, I can't even know. I don't even know where the nipples would be. Suppose you can milk anything with nipples. That's what they say. Uh, how do you want to wrap this thing up, sir? <laughs> I think we just did. <laughs> Roll music.